The American Health Law Association is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 issues of 2021, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Hi, this is Lori Foley. I'm a principal with PYA and glad to be with you today. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss the Behavioral Health 2021 Outlook. I'm joined today by Judd DeLoss. Judd is the CEO of the Illinois Association for Behavioral Health and a contributing author to the top 10 article that was the genesis of this podcast series. Judd, glad you're here today. Thank you, Lori. It's good to be here. Uh, I did want to make a quick shout out. Uh, my engagement uh, with AHLA has been over several years as a private practice attorney and, and then joining uh, the Illinois Association this past July. But uh, prior to that time, I had the good fortune to work with the Behavioral Health Task Force and, and lead up that task force. And uh, I would uh, refer uh, AHLA members to the task force for its outstanding uh, publication materials and, and uh, other uh, training resources. Absolutely. So it sounds like that probably helped guide some of the thinking. So your um, context was, I believe, number eight out of a, a out of a top ten list, and behavioral health is just a key issue that we're facing within healthcare. We're facing it nationwide in so many different areas. Um, so today we're going to spend some time, I think, digging deeper into some of the intersection of behavioral health, where it intersects the legal obligations, particularly related to HIPAA that um, some of our um, colleagues may be facing on a, on a regular basis. I know there were a lot of modifications made to those regulations within the last year related to confidentiality. Um, how is that impacting your approach and your um, thoughts about um, this subject? Well, it's, it's a great question. And it really kind of leads into this, this uh, massive shift in, in how uh, behavioral health does intersect and integrate with, with the rest of the medical and healthcare world. Uh, for many years, it's been siloed off and, and uh, the changes that were um, made and have been made, uh, there have been substantial revisions to the uh, regulations uh, relating to privacy and confidentiality of uh, behavioral healthcare information over the past four years. Uh, the goal, uh, the asserted goal was to uh, integrate that information to provide better treatment, better outcomes, and, and to uh, uh, ensure that the whole picture of the patient was included rather than having some of it being uh, segmented off. And I probably took it straight to HIPAA, but really it's a broader, it's a broader regulation, right? It's, it's broader than just HIPAA. In fact, it, some of these changes maybe more align it, but if we step further back and, and go to um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration changes, what do those look mm -hmm. like? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point and, and really has been the focus uh, of, uh, of a great deal of modifications these past few years. Um, most of the uh, substance use disorder or addiction information uh, is covered by a fairly obscure set of federal regulations called 42 CFR Part 2. Um, and uh, those, those regulations uh, are, are uh, titled the Confidentiality of Substance Abuse, Substance Use Disorder uh, Patient Records. And uh, they are much more stringent uh, than HIPAA or any uh, most other state laws, in fact. 
so they have been, um, depending upon your perspective, either uh, viewed as a, a barrier or a, a hurdle towards integrating uh, the stream or flow of healthcare information uh, from substance use or, or addiction treatment providers and that and the, those programs into the medical and healthcare field. Um, although the changes have, have come very slowly because there are uh, a very uh, strident group of, of advocates that oppose those changes. Um, the background of, of part two, as it's referred to in the industry, uh, is, is the confidentiality was created as the result of to address the, the issue of uh, law enforcement finding uh, patients that had sought treatment at uh, these addiction treatment facilities, uh, rating them, obtaining copies of the records that, that demonstrated that they were using illegal substances and then prosecuting them using that, that information. Um, and certainly over the years, there have been claims and, and uh, issues relating towards uh, the war on drugs and uh, a lot of other claims that uh, have, have hardened those positions to maintain the privacy and, and uh, essentially the, the, the segmentation and, and complete obscurity of the, that information from the rest of the healthcare world. Uh, and there's still those that believe that. I, I have worked uh, on both sides of the equation, especially and particularly in my position with the association. So I do understand to a great extent, and I do respect those that have uh, differing views than, than uh, some uh, on this issue. Um, but it, it has been, it has been um, a great deal of change and it has come very rapidly over, particularly over the past two years. What were some of the key drivers for that change? Was it just the need to be able to integrate or um, what, what caused, what was really the motivation behind that? Yeah, I think, I think uh, the, the integration was one key. Um, the ability to share the information, uh, although the regulations only apply to substance use uh, programs uh, as they're defined under the fed, federal regulations, the way that the, the law and the regulations are applied and interpreted actually uh, imposes an obligation downstream. So uh, to give you an example of, of how 42 CFR part two, part two worked historically, uh, in order to, to share any, virtually any, with, with a few minor exceptions, virtually any SUD information outside of that treatment program, patient consent or court order must be obtained. So that would uh, apply to a referral to a, pr a primary care provider, to a hospital uh, for payment purposes with an MCO or health insurer. Uh, any type of, of disclosure would require that sort of, of uh, process. Now that's, that's fairly easy, although in the age of electronic uh, health records, consent and having written consent has been obviously a, a hurdle. Uh, but once that information is shared, there is also a prohibition on redisclosing it. So under HIPAA, typically you, you, you typically don't need to consent to share information under HIPAA, uh, but once it's released or disclosed or shared, then the recipient may do with it what they are legally uh, permitted to do. Uh, in other words, if you have a hospital that releases information to a doctor, the doctor can re-release that information in accordance with HIPAA without an additional consent or notifying the, the patient that that information has been shared. Um, in, in the part two world, in the addiction treatment world, if that information is shared via consent from a, a part two program to a doctor, the doctor must go back and get the patient's consent in order to redisclose it. And that goes on indefinitely, uh, infinitely. So anytime information was going to be shared and, and could be shared under part two, there had to be a, a new consent obtained, which obviously, as you can imagine, 
once you get downstream quite a ways, it's almost impossible to, to, to full back up and identify where the patient might have been, where they might be, because this isn't necessarily someone that is, is uh, you know, uh, currently uh, receiving treatment. It's, it's anyone, uh, and, and in terms of the, the number of years that those uh, records are, are being held by the, the Part 2 program. Uh, so there were, so there were a number of barriers. Have, yeah. Where some might have taken treatment payment and operations for granted, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. healthcare providers, behavioral healthcare providers were not that, uh, didn't have that flexibility. It just wasn't a, it wasn't a granted flexibility for TPO. They had to go get all those years of, of protection or permission, it sounds like. So Very what were so. some of the key changes that, that have occurred in the last two years that, that have been impactful? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, this past year, there had been uh, a couple of, uh, in, in 2020, there were a couple of changes. And I'll start with those changes that were made to the regulations themselves, the part two regulations in, in 42 uh, Code of Federal Regulations. Um, in addition to some changes that had occurred previously in the past three, four years, this past, uh, in, in, in 2020, um, the, uh, the regulations went into effect that would open up and provide more flexibility in terms of sharing that information. Uh, so SAMHSA has sort of whittled away at some of these, these uh, restrictions and these um, uh, requirements. Uh, one of the more interesting uh, nuances of, of the more recent rule changes was that in order to avoid the application of Part 2, SAMHSA uh, interpreted the regulations to now say that a record, which was traditionally uh, protected under Part 2, did not include anything that was orally transmitted by the Part 2 program to the recipient. So if a doctor was talking to a Part 2 program on the telephone, received information, wrote that down in his or her record, that wouldn't be considered a Part 2 covered uh, bit of information. If that information had come through fax or an electronic health record transmission of some sort, and it was adopted and incorporated into the, the physician's uh, medical record or EHR, then it would be covered by part two. So that was one of the more interesting, I thought, nuances is, is how they were trying to uh, make as much change as possible based upon their hands being tied. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. The reason their hands were tied is because the underlying enabling statute, 42 USC 290 DD-2, uh, I've, I've read it enough that I've got it memorized now, um, <laughs> it's, uh, is, is so precise in, in its requirements and the longstanding interpretations that have been given to that since the 1970s when it was adopted. Uh, so there have been some changes. Another more controversial change uh, in, in this past year has been uh, historically uh, substance use disorder or, or um, uh, methadone clinics and, and MAT providers uh, were not uh, allowed to. In fact, SAMHSA uh, prohibited them from sharing any of their uh, prescribing information to the pres uh, prescription drug monitoring programs that are set up in, in virtually all states now. I think Missouri is the only state that doesn't have one. Uh, and those PM PDMPs uh, would track the, 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 the uh, prescriptions for controlled substances, the DEA requirements. And so uh, historically, there has been an entire set of records that were never included in those PDMPs. Now, during, under these uh, recent regulatory changes, there is the ability to share that information. However, it still requires patient consent. And that's really kind of the linchpin of part two is everything, almost everything requires patient consent. And it still does under these regulations, but they are now able to share uh, that information with the prescription drug monitoring programs here in Illinois. Uh, there have been some proposed changes to our, our PDMP to uh, permit that to happen. 
again, with that, with that caveat that the patient has to agree to it. And really, there's no way to force them to do so. So it, it, uh, I'm not sure how effective, you know, in the end, it will actually be. I know um, COVID has brought a lot of different changes over the years before we turn to the CARES Act implications, because I know there were some um, transitions that came through some of the responses to COVID. Any other key items that we haven't touched on that were preliminary, if you will? Um, you know, I, I think it, it really, it, it, uh, it, as I said, it, it really was an attempt to to um, make as many changes without changing the statute that SAMHSA could, could possibly undertake. And so uh, it's, it's kind of ironic that the rule changes went into effect because of the CARES Act changes that, we'll, that we'll, you, you mentioned that we will be talking about. Uh, but uh, overall, I think that that was the goal. It, it, it appears to me upon my reading and understanding of, of the part two changes is let's try to open up, it up as much as possible uh, to permit that kind of free flow of information uh, but in the end, we can only go so far because of our statutory limitations and Congress must act to make that change. And so that tells me if they were able to put forth that change and have it executed within the CARES Act, that somebody had something at the ready. This, this didn't just come through perhaps at COVID. It was just a good vehicle. And I know sometimes it happens that way. There are all these vehicles to get laws or regulations passed that, that might not be consistent with the beginning, though, though I think sharing of information during the COVID uh, and the public health emergency was, was critical, and this is probably a key piece of that. Um, but how do you translate and, and how did it get to this point that it did come through and there were those changes through the CARES Act? Well, it, it uh, I, I don't want to bore the listeners with 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 uh, stories of of lore and, and my history and involvement with the Part Two changes. But uh, one of the one of the more thrilling aspects of my legal career was the opportunity to testify in front in front of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, and uh, providing testimony on on the Part Two on Part Two and its interaction, as you mentioned, with HIPAA. Uh, and the limitations that Part Two imposes uh, that a lot of providers were trying to deal with was, was really quite a thrill. And, and it really uh, was an opportunity to educate. Uh, I was very impressed with, with the, the level of, of uh, engagement by uh, you know, Congress uh, men and women from both sides of the aisle uh, in order to, to obtain a better understanding of Part Two and how uh, the changes uh, would impact uh, providers as well as, as well as patients and, uh, and what could be done uh, to save or protect those key considerations and those key uh, provisions that were felt to be necessary to prevent uh, privacy uh, and you know, uh, losses of privacy and or uh, discrimination uh, in terms of uh, the use of that information once it was released. And so, uh, yes, there have been a number of attempts to, to change legislation uh, the, the section 290 DD-2 that I mentioned uh, in order to, to allow or permit SAMHSA to craft regulations that were more permissive uh, or more in alignment with HIPAA. And so that had taken place over the past uh, three, four years at least uh, and, and prior to that as well. But that's when things really started to gather steam. Uh, we saw a lot of, of uh, situations, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there were situations that were heavily publicized where there had been adverse uh, reactions because information could not be shared with, with other prescribers and there would be uh, you know, consequences from that. Uh, we have uh, heard and, and I've worked with, with uh, uh, addiction uh, treatment providers 
uh, for a great deal of my career where we as a provider were not permitted to share information uh, with parents or with other uh, family members because of the restrictions that Part 2 uh, imposed. And so uh, obviously if there was a discharge and a family was not aware of it and, and bad things happened and deaths occurred, the program's hands were tied. They could not share that information with those uh, family members. And, and uh, obviously uh, there, was a, there was an outcry over that type of situation. So a number of changes were made uh, regulatory wise over the past four years. And then yes, in March of 2020, in the midst of uh, the onset of COVID, uh, the CARES Act uh, created some substantial and, and uh, substantive changes to the regulate, or pardon me, to the legislation, which then uh, can be imposed uh, through the regulations. So obviously everybody was trying to get their hands around or their heads wrapped around the, the pandemic and their response to it. Things were moving fast and now we have the regulatory information coming through that they have to adopt in an area that's very regulated and key. What were some key things that came through that regulation in particular through the CARES Act that made a big difference? Well, as I mentioned, historically, there has been a concern about the ability to, to protect individuals uh, from use of their uh, medical records, their, their addiction uh, medical records in uh, the court of law. And so part two has historically imposed restrictions on the use of that information unless there is a valid court order. Uh, and, the, and the court order process itself is actually very specific and, and uh, requires a great deal of consideration and criteria to be met before the court can issue a valid part two order. Uh, to require disclosure of information. So, um, you know, some of the some of the limitations were in effect, and they were beefed up. And then there were new protections that were added that had not been uh, within the statute itself before. So, uh, for instance, you know, historically in proceedings, the information could not be shared. It could not be uh, used or referenced against the the individual or the the patient. I guess it'd be a better way to term it. Um, and so the 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 CARES Act changes now spell out that, that the information can't be used in, in legislative, administrative, or legal proceedings, uh, that the information cannot be used to obtain a warrant, the information cannot be used as evidence in any kind of criminal prosecution or civil, civil action. Um, and again, there's, there's a the very uh, uh, specific court order process that has to be met in order for that information to, to be utilized. And, and I think that was, that was one area. Um, you know, the, the issue has always been uh, that investigatory uh, angle and, and, and prohibiting that. I think the other big area that, that really is entirely new within the part two uh, structure uh, is the prohibition against discrimination. And historically, um, there has been a great deal of stigma that's been attached to addiction and addiction treatment. And, and that's, uh, some will say that the, that the stigma has continued because of this entire segmentation and segregation of, of that field from the rest of healthcare, that you can talk about diabetes, you can talk about heart disease, you can talk about all of these medical conditions without, uh, you know, a concern of being stigmatized, uh, where addiction has historically had that sort of seedy underbelly or, or been seen that way, that it is, uh, you know, the, the, the behavior of the individual rather than some type of disease that's causing this, that they are uh, somehow less worthy of, of treatment and, and of, of consideration. And so there had been, um, there had been cases in the past where even healthcare providers themselves had, had discriminated against those that had a history of an SUD. Uh, they didn't feel that they were trustworthy. They didn't feel that they could uh, you know, rely upon 
what the individual that what the patient was telling them that they had to go back and, and look at the actual records to to make sure that they weren't being lied to or or, or what have you. And so, the CARES Act amendments uh, it, it, it created an entirely new set of anti discrimination protections. One and first and foremost being, uh, you know, access to treatment or or receiving any kind of treatment or care. Um, there was also an expansion into into employment and, and hiring and uh, prohibition against uh, using that information in hiring, firing, or, or any other employment uh, related decision. Uh, I think was was uh, a major step forward uh, to pr protect individuals. Um, the housing uh, area has historically been an issue for those suffering from mental illness or or SUDs, and and uh, now there's a, a specific uh, protection there. Uh, under the ADA, not to get too deep in the weeds, I'm not an ADA lawyer, uh, but under the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, you, you could, in terms of employment or in housing, uh, you could say that an addiction was a condition or a disability, but if that individual was using any kind of substance while uh, employed, then the employer could rely upon that to terminate them. And so these new protections, I think, are broader than that uh, protection that was available under the ADA. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that bears out. We don't have any, any regulations yet. This is still, uh, as I mentioned, the, the CARES Act was the, the statutory change to 290 DD. Um, I mentioned the, the, the courts and, and the restrictions there, but there's also anti-discrimination in, in gaining access to the courts. And so the court system cannot impose a barrier for an individual uh, to, to uh, receive any kind of, uh, or, or to uh, you know, uh, start an, a new action or whatever the, the situation might be, the courts can, no, can well, I shouldn't say no longer, they cannot uh, discriminate uh, against an individual. And then any kind of uh, benefit or social services um, that uh, the federal, state, or, or municipal governments may provide, those cannot be uh, restricted and, and the individuals cannot be discriminated against in, in, with respect to, uh, to, to those services that they might uh, receive. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting because it does. It, 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 it brings about the thought of, okay, how does this really uh, bear out once these new regulations are created? How, what do those regulations look like? How does that discrimination prohibition uh, actually, you know, take take effect. Um, the historically, Part Two has been a criminal statute that's enforceable by by the U.S. Attorney, and so um, there hasn't been any uh, criminal enforcement uh, to speak of. Uh, but there have been uh, cases involving the interpretation of the statute and of and of the regulations. This changes it. The the the, the CARES Act amendment basically folds enforcement of part two in this into the same type of structure that HIPAA is. And that includes fines, penalties uh, that are very specified and, and uh, steps that can be taken to limit uh, and, and uh, mitigate those kinds of, of claims. Uh, there isn't a private right of action under HIPAA and there isn't a private right of action under part two, although evidence you, you could utilize it, I guess, as evidence of, of a violation of a, a standard uh, in order to bring a lawsuit. Um, so those are those are kind of the big uh, areas. Um, you know, the, uh, the 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 act itself that modified the CARES Act amendment that modified the, the statute did contain some some guidance, some thoughts and considerations of Congress um, in terms of when this this these these changes might apply. 
Um, but but one of the, the biggest things really that uh, that I think the the act does and, and, and it last but not least is that it did align uh, part two to a great extent with uh, with HIPAA. And so um, in terms of sharing information, consent is still required and uh, it appears that there will never be a change to that requirement. So under HIPAA, uh, you mentioned TPO, treatment payment healthcare operations does not require consent by the patient in order to engage in those processes. Under part two, there is still a requirement that they're get there, that the program or provider get that initial consent. And once consent is obtained, then information can be shared in accordance with HIPAA to other covered entities, programs, uh, et cetera. So there's the ability to share that information more freely under kind of the, the protections of HIPAA with other uh, covered entities, which are healthcare providers, essentially health plans and, and clearinghouses. Um, but there's there's still that that initial consent. And so there's there's kind of a there, there still remains a limitation uh, with respect to how that information might be shared outside of that process. Um, there would still need to be a separate consent in order to to uh, have that information flow outside of, of uh, a standard treatment payment or healthcare operation situation. It wouldn't open up uh, the disclosure of the information to all of the HIPAA exceptions. Uh, so HIPAA has a number, uh, as you probably know very well, Lori, that there's a number of exceptions right. that HIPAA doesn't require, obviously, any consent requirements. Uh, but what the healthcare provider or the health plan may do with that information, there's a, there's a large number. You know, you have legal proceedings, you have uh, uh, for purposes of, of reporting child abuse and neglect, um, the, the, the list goes on. Those exceptions do not apply you know, to, to part two, even under the new statute. So there's still going to be kind of this dual uh, system of, of, of maintaining that information. Um, so it, it will open things up to create a greater flow of information, I think, for, for the, the treatment and the payment and operational purposes. Uh, but we'll still have uh, kind of a two-tier or two-track uh, system for how that, that information is maintained. How it gets maintained, so there'll still be some operational implications and such. Is the yeah. um, now that the statute has been changed, is it back on SAMHSA's shoulders to come back and, and provide the regulatory guidance? Yeah, yeah. The the changes won't uh, won't be uh, uh, published yet. There will be uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking that's supposed to take place later this year. Um, I have not seen anything on the horizon, no indications of, of anything being uh, put together yet. Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean something couldn't happen. Obviously, with the change in the administration, uh, there may be some, some differing um, thoughts on this. And so, obviously, SAMHSA is well within its, its uh, uh, you know, discretion and, and, uh, in order to, to decide how broadly it will propose those regulations uh, that will be issued. So as we um, wrap up our conversation today, anything else for our colleagues to have on their radar? Obviously, it sounds like looking for that proposed rule. I assume there's a comment period like most of the, the processes and then everybody waits with bated breath for the final rule to drop mm -hmm. to see what was taken into consideration and, and not any parting words that our colleagues should have kind of at the forefront of their minds. Well, that's that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I got into behavioral health care uh, through my, my background in health information and, and privacy and, and confidentiality. And I think really that's going to be the issue as we move forward is, is we're making changes to part two under these, these statutory and regulatory revisions. 
We've got HIPAA and there were some changes made to HIPAA more recently as well. Uh, but now the, the, the focus may actually uh, be a little more difficult to track in terms of each state statute or regulation or, 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 or case law that may apply that restricts the flow of that information uh, otherwise. And so, uh, you know, stay tuned to, to find out how that's going to be impacted. Uh, you know, most states have specific requirements with respect to mental health information, which is treated differently than addiction information. And so uh, those are currently in place and, and uh, each will have to be addressed depending upon, uh, you know, how things uh, proceed on the federal level. I think it, it really it ties in very well with, with the, the COVID shift to, to telehealth and other types of healthcare delivery models, uh, because these considerations have to be taken into consideration when you're, when you're you know, uh, planning and, and delivering that healthcare. So yes, stay tuned. Well, Judd, I have enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope our listeners have benefited from this discussion. It definitely is a front and center topic and we covered a lot. Happy to do so. It was great to work with you, Lori. Thank you.